Grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father and from Jesus our Savior who is the bread of life. There can come a point when a person hits a wall and says, I've had enough, I can't go on. About a week ago, I was talking with someone whose grandson just committed suicide, and part of the conversation was, they had no idea, what was it? Someone who's young, someone who seemed to have so much, what was it about him and his life that made him just give up? But it, it doesn't always have to be that extreme. There are ways where a person can just feel like they give up on life, even though it wasn't always that way. The, the person at one time had all kinds of energy, had all these dreams, all these kinds of things they were looking forward to in life, but then something changed. And all of a sudden, everything in life seems worthless and meaningless and pointless, and it's hard to get up and do anything. Now, that's not new. Ever since there's been sin in the world, people have wrestled with those kind of dark thoughts deep down inside. And depends on how you look at it, there are different ways you can, you can label it. You can look at it as, from the medical community, maybe there's an imbalance in brain chemicals and you label it depression or something like that. Looking back in, in, over the centuries, how have Christians dealt with these feelings inside where everything is horrible and rotten, I'm gonna give up. There are different words you can, you can put on it, it's so complex, but one of them is the word Acadia, which is one of the seven deadly sins. It's often translated as laziness or sloth, but that, that's only on the surface. That's not really what it's getting at inside. What that word tries to get at is this feeling where you have lost caring about life. It means I don't care. It's, it's a point where how can there be somebody who they used to love food and now you could have the best chef in the whole world make the best food and put on a plate and the person would look at it and say, eh, I'm not really feeling hungry. You could have someone who has the most wonderful spouse and kids at home and you'd say to them, aren't you looking forward to spending this evening with your family? And they'd say, not really. You could have someone who worked and worked to get in this career path and they worked up the ladder. They are in the position where it's the most exciting thing they ever imagined and influences, has a lot of impact on a lot of people and you say, do you want to go to work today? And they say, not really. Uh, what is it that brings someone to that, to that point? This not caring even about the best things that God can give in, in life. As Christians have talked about that, one way that, that that attitude is described is it's a temptation that comes at high noon in life. Looking at life as a day from the morning all the way through to the evening. Uh, and if you look at it that way, it goes kind of like this, that when it's early morning, that's when you get up and have all full of energy and say, I'm going to tackle this project today. Just like in life, often people who are in their younger years have all these dreams and ambitions. They're going to change the world, which is wonderful. Uh, but you live a couple more decades and you try really hard and all of a sudden you realize how difficult some of those dreams were, uh, even bordering on impossible. So, looking at it as a day, it's lunchtime, you take a break to have lunch and sit down for a bit. And as you sit down for lunch, you look back and realize how hard the work was in the morning. And you look ahead and it's 20 degrees hotter and the sun's out and you're starting to feel really tired and you say, I was crazy to have, have tried that, there's no way I can get this done. 
and you get worn out and exhausted, and the thing that sounds best of all after lunch isn't to get back to work, it's to take a nice nap. And you smile at that, but you know how, this isn't just talking about a day, this is talking about a lifetime, and there can be a point in life where someone hits a wall and says, I don't think I'm up to the afternoon. I think that I am, I'm done. And I lead with this because today we find Elijah at that point where he lays down and says, I want to die. And this is not just anybody, this is one of the greatest prophets of God in the entire Old Testament. And if somebody like that hits a wall, uh, what hope is there for the rest of us? Uh, So let's look at Elijah today. We've got just a few verses from his life. Maybe this will ring some bells for you and you'll remember a lot of other stories you know from his life. If not, you could go back and probably read the whole account of his life in about 20 minutes at home. You'd have to go back a couple chapters before this. Let me take you back and then get to the passage we read today and then tell you what happened after that too. Elijah lived in the Old Testament during the time when God's people had been divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was the one where the people more and more turned away from God. So Elijah was a prophet at a very difficult time, especially because the king, well, he was a prophet, was King Ahab. Maybe that name doesn't mean a lot to you, but he was one of the worst kings the Israelites had, and what made it worse is, even worse than him, was probably his wife Jezebel. She wasn't actually an Israelite. She had been in an arranged marriage. She was a Phoenician princess. Phoenicia was the area north of Israel, and the reason that they had arranged that marriage, the, the political society in Israel at that time, was because Phoenicia was the economic powerhouse, sending ships all over the Mediterranean. And so the idea was, we need to marry into the Phoenician royal family to have some influence there in Israel. And I don't know if they knew all the implications of having her come in as the queen would be, but one of them was this. She was determined to bring Baal with her from Phoenicia. Baal is the god of storms and lightning from from Phoenicia, and she wanted to bring Baal in not just as her personal preference, but she was going to have everybody worship Baal. And so, using her power as queen, she started killing all the prophets of, of God. And this is where Elijah's ministry is. And he didn't quit preaching. He kept speaking as a prophet, even as the other prophets were, were killed one by one. In fact, he kept going and speaking so much that Ahab and Jezebel had a nickname for him. They called him the Troubler of Israel, which showed what a pain in the side he was for them as he refused to give in and kept preaching about the true God. Elijah said that because of the people's disobedience and turning away from God, God was going to call them to repentance by sending a drought. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Elijah had to go into hiding because he was number one on the most wanted list for Jezebel. But God kept him safe, and after three years of famine, Ahab was ready to talk. When the crops were all dried up, when the people were starving, Ahab met Elijah again. And they worked out a deal where there was going to be a showdown on mountain, a mountain named Mount Carmel, which overlooks the Mediterranean Sea, about 20 miles west of the capital Jezreel. And the deal was the 450 prophets of Baal whom Jezebel had replacing the true prophets of God, they would be there and Elijah would be there as the sole representative for the true God. 
And they were each going to pray to God, and whichever one would call down fire from heaven would show that their God was, was real. So for most of that day, up there on that mountaintop, with all kinds of people there gathered, these 450 prophets of Baal prayed that Baal would send fire from heaven, and there was nothing because Baal isn't real. And then Elijah, with a short and beautiful prayer, asked God to send fire on a sacrifice that he actually had dumped water on to prove just how powerful God is. And God sent fire from heaven and burned up the sacrifice in view of Ahab and all the people there, and they start shouting, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah starts to ride this wave of support, and they put to death those 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah must have been convinced that this was the start of the whole nation turning back to God. And so Elijah there on that mountaintop prayed that God would end the drought and said rain. And the way he describes it, looking over the Mediterranean Sea to the west, there was a cloud about the size of a man's hand. And Elijah kept praying. And the cloud kept growing and growing into this massive storm front. I think of what I've seen looking outside my window these last weeks in Wisconsin. And Elijah says to Ahab, you'd better get back to Jezreel quick. So Ahab gets in his chariot with his horses and takes off the 20 miles to get to Jezreel trying to beat the storm. And Elijah then tucked his cloak into his belt and the Bible says that God's power came over him so strongly that he beat Ahab back running on foot. So if you ever have the Bible trivia question, which prophet ran a marathon faster than horses? It was Elijah on that day. You think... Elijah, at the, the, the peak of physical and spiritual strength, he's running back into Jezreel ahead of Ahab and all these people, and I'm sure Elijah expected that this was going to be the start of something new. If that was Elijah at the peak, it didn't take long for him to, to crash because the reading we had this morning comes right after that. We were missing verses 1 and 2. Let me read those for you. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And it seems like that message from Jezebel is what made something snap inside Elijah. He had run, not into hiding, he had run to the very capital of the country. He had come there with Ahab and these people who had seen a miracle with their own eyes, who had all shouted, the Lord, he is God. I think Elijah had expected that this was a start of a religious reformation where the people would put Baal away and turn back to the truth. And then, I don't know if this was the very next day, it must have been really soon after that, he gets this message from Jezebel that says, within 24 hours, I'm going to kill you. And all of a sudden, Elijah realized that that whole turning back to God that he had dreamed of was not going to come true. That Ahab, in spite of what he had seen, was not going to stand up to his wife and that the people weren't, weren't either. And so rather than stay and fight it, Elijah ran away. Not by himself at first. He took a servant with him. I don't know who that was or anything about that servant, but they headed south. It's about 75 miles from Jezreel 
down through Israel, across all of Judah, to the, the town that, if you're on page five, uh, to Beersheba is the last outpost before you head out in the wilderness. And when it's wilderness, don't think like rolling sand dunes. I think of, I, I drove through Wyoming this summer on vacation, and I think of Wyoming, where you got scrub brush and a few cows, but really nothing that can support uh, a lot of people. That's what it's like south of Beersheba in the wilderness down there. So Elijah gets to Beersheba, and you can maybe sense the mood he's in. He doesn't even want the servant with him. He just wants to be alone. And so he leaves that servant there, and he heads out a whole day's journey south into the middle of nowhere. And where we find him then is underneath a broom tree, broom bush, depending on what you call it. Uh, the translation here says bush because don't think some big tree like we have here. Think about the biggest thing that can grow, something scrubby with thorns that would grow out in the middle of nowhere. And that's the most shade he could find in the sun, and Elijah laid down and asked God to die. And so if you've got his words in front of you, look at verse 4. Because that's where you get a sense of what was going on inside him that brought him to that point. He said this, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. You see Elijah at rock bottom. But that's not where we leave him and not where I want to leave you today either because now is when God's going to come and speak to him. But if you look at those two things Elijah said, you get a sense of what was going on inside his heart. First one was, I have had enough. And if you'd make a list of what Elijah had been through, he'd been through a lot of really hard things in life. For years and years, he had persevered. He had fought as a prophet of God in the middle of a nation that was being led away from God. He had remained faithful even as people he probably knew were being executed as prophets of God. He had lived in hiding for three years because he was he was wanted. The amount of stress that he'd been in under the amount of danger and there had been a lot in his life and you get the sense that Elijah thought that that day when everything was going to turn around, maybe finally his life would be a little bit easier. And then he realized when Jezebel told him she was going to kill him that that wasn't true. His life was still going to be really, really hard and he said, I can't take it anymore, God. I have had enough trouble in my life. Second thing he said was, I am no better than my ancestors. Which I think is a really deep and insightful thing for him to say. It, he doesn't explain that more, but I get the sense that he had thought that he in some way was going to be different and better than the prophets that came before him. And again, maybe this comes from that age in youth. Maybe some of you are in that, in, that, in that age when you think that if only you were running the world and not your parents or your grandparents, you could fix all the problems and do everything better. <laughs> and if you're in that age, good for you. It, it's good to go out into life with a lot of optimism and dreams. But Elijah had reached the point where he had tried everything that he thought he could do. And he realized all of a sudden that he wasn't actually any better than the prophets who had come before him. 
he hadn't been able to turn everyone back to God either on his own strength. And so Elijah said, I give up. God, please take my life. And he lay down there to sleep. And then God came. If you've got the words in front of you, look at verse 5. All at once he woke up and there was an angel there. But if, if you jump down or, or listening closely before, it wasn't just an angel. Verse 7 says it was the angel of the Lord. Which, if you know your Old Testament, is a phrase that pops up a whole bunch of times and often at the most crucial points of the Old Testament. Like when God's talking to Moses or to Joshua or to the parents of, uh, of Samson. And this angel of the Lord is not just a messenger from God. Usually it's described as someone who is God, who speaks as God, who's worshipped as God. People wonder if the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is actually Jesus Christ before he came in the flesh at Christmas. And so the angel of the Lord is there and Elijah wakes up and the angel of the Lord speaks to him. And what would you expect the angel to say? Angel doesn't chew him out or kick him in the pants and send him back. It's, it's not a reprimand. It's, it's also not the angel answering every objection that's on Elijah's mind or telling him it's gonna be, everything's going to be okay. That's not it either. If you look at verse 5, the angel simply said to him, get up and eat. And there God provided for Elijah some fresh break, baked bread and some water. Because in the mood that he was in, Elijah had headed in the middle of nowhere with nothing to eat or drink, probably because he didn't intend to last very long or to come back home ever. And the angel says to Elijah, you got to eat something. So Elijah does and he goes back to sleep. Verse 7, he wakes up again. Angel of the Lord again says, get up and eat, and again provides him with some food, and then adds this, for the journey is too much for you. Now, I don't know if Elijah had planned to go further or just to lie down there and die, but God said, Elijah, you're going to keep going. And whether or not God told him where or Elijah just picked the spot, Elijah then traveled about another 200 miles south. If you keep going straight through that wilderness, you end up at a mountain called Mount Horeb, or you might know it better as Mount Sinai, the place where God met with Moses and gave his people the Ten Commandments. And there, Elijah once again met God. Not now to give him bread for his stomach, but to sustain his soul and to, to pick Elijah back, back up. And, and there at Mount Sinai, Elijah laid it all out before God. I've been zealous. I really tried hard, God. I couldn't have done any more. But the people have rejected you. They've, they've broken down your altars. They've been killing all your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're going to kill me too. The speech of a man who has just given up and thinks he has every reason to do so. And then God spoke. First, Elijah heard this huge wind come ripping through the mountains. I think of any of you stand outside these last couple of weeks with the storms that came through? But God wasn't in the wind. Then there was an earthquake that shook the mountain, but God wasn't in the earthquake. Then a fire came through, but God wasn't in the fire. God chose not to come in power, but to come in the middle of the silence. And so in the silence, Elijah walked outside, and then God spoke in the still, small voice. And God told Elijah to head back, 
to anoint the next prophet after him, to anoint the king who was going to get rid of Ahab, to anoint another king who was going to be from a foreign country who was going to put pressure on the nation of Israel, a way that God was going to call them to repentance. And God said to Elijah, by the way, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I've kept 7,000 people faithful to me who haven't bowed down to Baal. And God doesn't say it in these words, but if I would summarize God's message to Elijah, it was this, Elijah, you may have given up, but I haven't. I haven't given up on you. I haven't given up on my people. I still care. And you think of, if there's anybody in the world who ought to give up on life and people, how about God to give up on, on people who keep rejecting him? But God's plan was that that northern kingdom of Israel, uh, there would be God's word preached there through the prophets. There would be people who remained faithful. And even bigger than that, God had a plan to save the whole world by sending Jesus. And these people in the land of Israel were part of that promise of God. And Elijah was part of it too as God's prophet. And so God said, Elijah, I'm sending you back because I care about you and I care about my people. If you'd say, what happens after that? Uh, Elijah went back. And the sense I get was not because he had to or God forced him to, but because he had found in God a reason to keep going as God's prophet. Even though God did not fix everything the way that I think he'd been dreaming. Was there some great reformation where everybody turned back to God in Elijah's lifetime? No. But did the prophets keep preaching? Did he pass the ministry on to Elisha next? Yes, he did. And God did raise up other kings who got rid of Ahab's family. God did work through world history to accomplish the plan that he had to save the world. And I think this is the most ironic of all for me. This man Elijah, who lay down under the bush to die there, never died. He is one of the two people in the Bible who went to heaven without ever dying. Other one is Enoch back in Genesis. Uh, God, when it was time for Elijah's ministry finally really to be done, not when Elijah thought it was done, when it was really time to be done, God sent a chariot and horses of fire to pick him up and take him to heaven in a whirlwind. God brought Elijah to glory. Even though that day underneath the broom bush, Elijah thought it was, there was nothing left for him to hope for. And the reason this fits in today is because Jesus says in John chapter 6 that he is the bread of, of life. Not just bread for our stomachs, he is the bread that feeds our souls because he's not from this world, he's the one who came from heaven. And all the people say, how can that be? We know that you're just Mary and Joseph's son, right? And Jesus says, no, I am the son of God the Father himself. And Jesus is able to give us the words of God the Father in a way that no one else can. He's able to give life, not just for a day, not just for a hundred years and a lifetime in this world. Jesus is able to give us a life that never, ever ends. Because he's the one who's able to forgive our sins because he died and rose. He's the one who gives our life a meaning and purpose that goes beyond anything in this world. And so today... As people who know Jesus, the bread of life, I'm praying that he would give you the ability to keep going. I don't know if right now you're under your own kind of broom bush or have been or someday will be. But if you're ever there or if you ever meet somebody who's there and you're the one who can talk to them, 
Remember what Elijah learned when he was there. God's the one who sustains us in our bodies and in our souls. And it's the second one I think we focus on as Christians, rightly so, but don't forget the first one too. First thing God said to Elijah is, you gotta eat something. Otherwise, the journey in front of you is gonna be too long. And still today, when I see people who have given up caring, one way you can tell is they often stop caring for themselves. With food, that can mean either they stop eating and they waste away, or they say, who cares, and they eat way too much, and you can see they eat their stress. I've seen people where their way of not caring is they stop taking care of their house. There are people who don't sleep at night. There are people who don't, who don't care. And for you, if you're in the kind of situation where you're facing a lot of stress, where you feel like giving up, maybe it's time for you to actually eat some good food or get a good night's sleep. Maybe, too, you go to a doctor and find out if there is some kind of medicine that would help with the chemical imbalance, whatever is going up in your head. God cares about you, body and, and soul. First thing God said to Elijah is, get up and eat. But that's not where it ended. And I pray that like Elijah heard God's word at Mount Horeb and was able to keep going, that you would find the message from God in his word that keeps you going too. Message about God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus for you. A message that in life, there's never a point for a Christian where life loses its meaning because we are in, in him. There's no point in life where there's nothing to look forward to because we have him by our side and then eternal life in heaven. There's never a point when you are all alone, never a point when you are unloved, never a point when there is a time that we ought to just lay down and, and give up. And so I'd pray that no matter where you're at in life, if you look at it as a day, Maybe you're still in the morning and you still are full of energy and nothing can stop you. You know, Go ahead and enjoy those years. Keep going. May God give you the ability to help other people with some of those dreams you have. If you're in that time where you've hit a wall and how do you keep going, then may God give you the strength to not sit down and take a nap all afternoon, but to get back out into the world loving the people around him that he's put around you. If you're headed toward the evening, Keep going too until God says it's, it's time. Might not be a chariot of horses and, and, and chariot and horses of fire like Elijah, but when it's time, not when we lay down and say we're done, but when God knows that our work here is done, then God will take us to glory with him forever. He'll keep us going all the way until then. Amen. Let's now rise.